Well, good evening to you. I hope that your Sunday has been worshipful and restful and joyful. It's a joy for us to be able to gather and to have the privilege of corporate worship in our time together. And I have been blessed by throughout my whole life having that privilege from the time as a child through even now to be able to gather with the people of God and to encourage one another, practicing that passage in the book of Hebrews that tells us to encourage one another. Do not forsake our assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. So as we've been doing in our Sunday evenings, we are going to take some time together and sort of take questions and have some discussion about the things that we covered this morning during the sermon. So uh, this is an opportunity for you to ask and for you to share. So are there things from this morning service you would like to begin by asking about or commenting on or maybe asking for some clarification or further discussion? Yes, Linda. Absolutely. Um, the covenant is sort of, um, I guess... It's one covenant, but it has several parts. One is that it is a covenant with each other. It is a legal, binding, lifetime covenant that two people enter into, a husband and a wife. They pledge it first to each other. They pledge it second. As they're pledging to each other, they pledge to God. Third, they pledge to the community. They are saying to the community, uh, this is something we will have you hold us accountable for. And so there's the community. And, and then there is, in a sense, the, the going out further beyond their immediate community to the, the world itself, they're making that pledge. So it's sort of fourfold to each other, to God, to the church community, particularly the local, the close-knit community and expressing that on out into the world, that, that they're covenanting together, making a promise, a pledge, an oath. And it's interesting that we're really careful in that language. Linda, I don't know how far back we have records of marriages, but we uh, in, in the Christian church have had these things that we still, what we want to say, traditionally say that um, pledge before God, this company, to give an oath, a covenant that is sworn until death. Very serious oath that is made there. And so um, it, that covenant has with it um, something that God respects and something that the people of God should respect. 
Um, C.S. Lewis is famous for saying, and I read it in our um, sermon, let's see, last week, and I've got the note here from what C.S. Lewis said, and I I thought it was um, pretty stout. He says, before we consider the church's modern view in its relation to chastity, we must not forget to consider it in relation to another virtue, namely justice. Justice, as I said before, includes the keeping of promises. Now, everyone who has been married in a church has made a public, solemn promise to stick to his or her partner until death. The duty of keeping that promise has no special connection with sexual morality. It is in the same position as any other promise. If, as modern people are always telling us, the sexual impulse is just like all our other impulses, then it ought to be treated like all our other impulses. And as their indulgence is controlled by our promises, so should it be. If, as I think, it is not at all like our other impulses, but is morbidly inflamed, then we should be specially careful that it not lead us into dishonesty. Excuse me. To this, someone may reply that he regarded the promise made in church as mere formality and never intended to keep it. Whom then was he trying to deceive when he made that covenant? God? That was really unwise. His own self? That was not much wiser. The bride or the bridegroom or the in-laws? That was treacherous. Most often, I think, the couple or one of them hoped to deceive the public. They wanted the respectability that is attached to marriage without intending to pay the price. That is, they were imposters. They cheated. If they're still contented cheats, I have nothing to say to them. Who would urge the high and hard duty of chastity on people who have not yet wished to be merely honest? If they have now come to their senses and want to be honest, their promise already made constrains them. And this, you will see, comes under the heading of justice, not that of chastity. If people do not believe in permanent marriage, it is perhaps better that they should live together unmarried than that they should make vows they do not mean to keep. It is true that by living together without marriage, they shall be guilty, in God's eyes, of fornication. But one fault, fornication, is not mended by adding another, lying. Unchastity is not improved by adding perjury. C.S. Lewis talked about how frivolous the idea of marriage is in society today and how people actually go in and make these vows with really already in their heart an idea that I'm not going to keep this, I'm just going to walk through this. And he's saying that if they're going to just willfully sin, it's not really a good idea to add perjury to unchastity. And so uh, now I don't think C.S. Lewis had the idea that he thought it was a good idea to live together. That's definitely not his thought. But his thought was, if you don't respect marriage, don't play with it. Don't toy with it. Don't, don't call it something that you don't intend for it to be. Good question, Linda. Thank you. Okay, other questions? Now, Linda got the ball rolling, so it's okay now. Yes, Kathleen.
Well, I think Kathleen's asking, you know, how do we how do we talk to people that are maybe living together? They're in a situation that we know that that situation itself is is improper in the Lord's view. I think that we have two sections of people that we deal with in that, and and the Bible tells us to treat these two sections of people differently. The confessing believer within the church who's making that statement is treated differently than the person who we know to be far from God, to be lost. Uh, The confessing believer, uh, the Scripture calls us to a much more firm, aggressive move to confront that and to bring to them the idea that, maybe like 1 Corinthians 6, to say to them, you may be deceived here. Your testimony says one thing, but your actions actually speak against your testimony and contradict it. So, so you've got two passages of Scripture that would be, well, there's lots of passages, but like this moment, 1 Corinthians 6 we read this morning, do not be deceived for neither fornicators, nor and fornicators is the word that would apply to people living together who are not actually breaking a commitment of, of, um, of covenant. In other words, one of them is not married to somebody else. So. <clears throat> And so that would be one way to approach it. And then the other way uh, is to come in to Luke 8, we did this morning, and say, hey, there's a danger that what's going on here is that there's this hardness of heart where the gospel is not penetrated and you appear to be saved, but you might be the very person that this parable is talking about and what you're now demonstrating is that you're not saved. And therefore, I have to take up with you your soul and have a conversation with you because First John says if you willfully continue in sin you are stating that you do not know him. Now again, we're talking about willfully continuing in sin. We're not talking about a, a momentary lapse or a failure or fall, but a willful con- continuation so we have to address that. Now, rewind back. If I'm talking to an unbeliever I'm, well, it's, I'm going to go to the gospel because um, <clears throat> Trying to get people to be moral without God may give them some sense that just by being moral, God's going to let them into heaven. So, okay, guys, you're sinning. If you will get married, God's going to let you in heaven. Bad way to represent the gospel. So I want to go into that situation and I want to say, now, I want to talk to you about what you're doing, but I want to tell you why you're doing it. The heart that is filled, the heart that is uh, settled in God, wants to obey Him... And one of the ways we obey him is with sexual integrity. And people who are living together are not typically practicing sexual integrity. And so we want to address that with them. But we address that as a gospel issue. So my main goal is not to get them married, it's to get them saved. And I've found out that when God gets hold of the heart, he tends to tend to a lot of other things too. And then if they do get saved, then, then I will help them walk through that process of how do we repent of this particular area, not just general repentance of sin, but particularly of this area and how do I get it fixed. I'm having two different conversations. One with a saved person about the possibility of deception, of thinking that they're okay. 
another with a lost person that I want to introduce to Jesus so that my main thing is to love them and give them a pure picture. I want them to be at my dinner table and see what a, a healthy marriage looks like. I want them to be in my home to see what a healthy family looks like. I want them to be, I want to spend time with them. And so I'm going to be evangelizing this family and, and pursuing them with grace and love and truth. But my goal is not to get them married, it's to get them to know Christ. And then Christ tends to those other things. And I do raise those issues, but that's not my central issue. In fact, uh, I was sharing the gospel with a friend of mine who is homosexual. And I shared with him, I said, I need to communicate something to you. It's not that you're gay. It's that you're lost. I'm not here as the evangelist of heterosexuality to say to you, go heterosexual and you're good with God. <laughs> That's not what I mean. I'm here to say to you, when God gets your heart, he, he fixes these things that have caused this to be the dominant expression of your life. And therefore... I'm loving them with the gospel and my conversation with them is about salvation more than sexuality. And I think that's a problem that the church has had is we've been kind of screaming this megaphone of, um, you know, we're, we're against gay marriage, we're against homosexual behavior, we're really well know what we're against, but what are we for? We're for people being reconciled with God and forgiven and free and, and filled and, and having all this going on in their lives that is the wholeness of what God intends for them. And so if we're always known for what we're against, we make a mistake with not telling what we're really for. You want to follow that up, Kathleen? Did that meet that? Okay. Thank you. Tom? Absolutely. And I think that's how... Paul presents the gospel, I think, of course, having learned from Jesus that there's this beauty. You know, at the end of 1 Corinthians, that section we read this morning, 1 Corinthians 6, it says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the Spirit of our God, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's always this gospel hope for whatever the sin is. Good. Kevin. Robbie Zacharias in the New Birth. You know, Robbie, Robbie Zacharias was speaking at one of the universities, and I can't remember where. Um, and he was explaining, he was taking on some issues in uh, homosexual behavior, and one of those issues that has been brought forth has been the idea or the belief or the, the, the philosophy that homosexuality is genetic that someone is born with, um, like they've called it, the gay gene. And so the challenge for that has, has been, Robbie said, what if they do find that? It's not going to change the story. The story is that Jesus comes to the earth and says, you need to be born again. Your first birth has not produced something acceptable to God that's going to get you into heaven. You have to have a second birth. So whatever condition the first birth caused in you, 
And if, and if somebody next month finds out, okay, there's a gene that causes people to be gay, Jesus' teaching is not going to change. They are now saying that people who are philanderers uh, have some kind of genetic problem and that their philandering is sort of built into that. And there's actually some research coming behind that that there's, there's some genetic um, markers maybe that may align with this, and, and um, one of those are certain characteristics of the human body that are genetic, and that those things may actually be markers or predisposers for philandering, for, for having lots and lots of um, uh, relationships, particularly this, this study was about men, and it doesn't change anything. Nobody can go, and, and I think that that's what the Apostle Paul's taken up in, Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11, when the vessel says to the potter, why'd you make me this way? The necessity of every person born on this earth is that they need to be born again. And therefore, if next week they find out that there's a gay gene, the church doesn't fold its cards and say, well, we lost that battle. The church says the same thing she's always said. You must be born again. And so I think Robbie Zacharias was raising the issue because so many people are building their argument that they know absolutely for certain that there's no way that it's a gay gene. But what if next month somebody found out that there is? What's the church going to do with that? Go, well, I guess we'll accept homosexuality now. And what Robbie was saying is, no, we won't. Because everybody from the fall has some kind of sinful disposition. And that sinful disposition will exhibit itself in some form. For some, it's lying, and others, it's stealing, and others, it's cheating, and others. There's some form in which their fallen birth is going to exhibit itself in some form of behavior that is against God and His Word. And therefore, in a sense, we are Adam and Eve's genetic heirs. And in our first birth, there is a fall in us, hardwired, that we are responsible for because we act upon the impulses from it. And God does not excuse us from our impulses just because Adam and Eve fell. And so when we talk about sexuality, when we talk about homosexuality, when we talk about any kind of broken sexuality, it's important that we understand the new birth is the message of the New Testament. No matter what is the cause of the sin. Even a person who's been abused cannot say, I was sexually molested and therefore I have permission to be a sexual molester. So that's kind of what Ravi said. Kevin, did you want to follow that up? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and 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 yeah, yeah, and and as Sherry just said, the perfection of that is pre-fall. There are people born now that are actually have both sets of parts. 
and actually have to have surgery to correct and to direct their body one way or the other because of something that occurred during the process of the development in the womb, and they're actually born with both parts. And so they have some challenges that uh, your your um, they have some challenges that were not the same challenges Adam and Eve might have faced, and therefore those kind of things lend us to see that there are some biological brokennesses that exist within the human frame that still call us to one thing: repentance from sin, faith in Jesus Christ that is premised in the new birth. So Ravi does not say that God somehow has changed his design. What Robbie does say is that the fall has broken us at such a level that it may actually be at a biological level. And if that is true, that doesn't change the message. And the message is repentance from sin, faith in Jesus Christ. You must be born again. And so um, he's not backing up or crawfishing on God's design in any way, but he's taking into account the horrendous brokenness that we have biologically as a result of the fall that does not excuse us from our behavior, that that still is a clear call. You must be born again. Does that help you out? Yes, sir. Right behind David. Was that the man right behind David? Did he have a question? David, okay. No. Yes. I don't think the scripture has anything to say about sensitive boys other than that may be an artistic and sweet wiring of God. We need to be really careful about that because <clears throat> it's, it's very possible that we frame manhood in some cultural things rather than in some biblical things. So if you take a guy who's a a hunter and a fisher, and Matt Chandler addressed this in his in his sermon, God and Sex, and he said, you know, we've kind of formed man culture as kind of like, you know, you're a deer hunter, you're a fisherman, you're, um, 
you're a football player. There's a man culture that's these things. And the Bible doesn't really, you got the, one of the most manly guys in all of Scripture is David, and he's a poet. And he's a very good poet. And there's a very sensitive side to this guy that's glorious, and he's young and ruddy when you see him. He's not the bearded, masculine, macho brother that would have stood out as the typical king, but he's young and ruddy. And so I think that there's a picture of manhood that is not biblical, but it's kind of southern cultural. It's kind of a four-wheel drive, redneck, gun-toting kind of idea. And, and it's because a lot of us grew up in a four-wheel drive, redneck, gun-toting culture, and that's how our men kind of expressed their manliness. But what happened is, is this, this boy was born into one of those families, and he was artistic, and he was sensitive, and he was caring, and he, he was wired really differently. And suddenly he got outcast and categorized and then ended up becoming prey to the homosexual community because they are the only ones that would accept him. And therefore, the, the testosterone community becomes guilty of a kind of manhood that the Scripture actually doesn't call us to. And, and we ended up divining manhood as sort of a southern cultural... You know, Matt Chandler said, you're a real man? Don't go sit in a heated deer stand from 300 yards and pop this little deer off that you've been feeding all year. He said, get naked, chase him down, and bite him to death. He said, then, then I'll call you a man. If you're going to go that route, let's do that. And so I, I heard that the other day, and I just literally burst out laughing. I said, now that's typical Matt Chandler of how he would put that. And so I think that there is a... This, when we reread the word effeminate in 1 Corinthians 6, that was when a man groomed himself to look girlish in order to attract homosexual men. It was an intentional thing. This was not a boy who was wired up. And by the way, this is why Bible study and knowing Greek and those kind of things are important for churches because you get a pastor up there start railing against boys that are effeminate and have have all these tech and all of a sudden that kid's outcast from your church and the only place he can identify is the homosexual community and the church becomes guilty of putting on him something that came not from God at all and if any of you raised a sensitive boy or a tomboyish girl. I've got a tomboyish girl. My daughter works at Jiffy Lube. How many guys can say that? And so i got a tomboyish girl. And if we cla classify feminism in a certain way, masculinity in a certain way, we may end up damaging some people and causing them to be pushed aside. Right behind David. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. 
That's right. Mm. That's right. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's exactly how James handles that. Yeah. yeah. Well, we discussed this kind of this past week that when we come to someone and we have to tell the truth in a difficult situation... But the proverb says that wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. And so the one, good to see you tonight. Uh, the, okay, be careful. All right, we'll see you. Um, and, and the truth, when it's, when it's brought in in love, is sometimes very painful to a person. And it's very shocking to a person. And Sherry reminded me of this in a, a conversation I'd had this past week that was very painful, that um, when we love somebody at the soul level, not in order to gain their acceptance or their approval, but we love them at the soul level, we will tell them the truth even if it hurts them, even if it wounds them, because that's why the proverb says, wounds of a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Kissing up on somebody and leaving them to die in their sin is to be their worst enemy. And so there is a necessity of us, as our brother said, that, that 
laying truth on top of all stated things, is to say this is what God says. And whether we want to root it in our biology or our experience or our choice, God's Word will never change to that. And that is, you must be born again. Good, good word. Other questions? Brittany? Absolutely. And I think that's part of the challenge, Brittany, of the Christian testimony. Are Christians living at the level of self-denial that exhibits the value of the gospel and the value of eternal, uh, eternal life? Are we doing that in such a way that exemplifies the same kind of calling from a person who would have to deny something that feels so central to their being? And so if we're not living out the Scriptures in self-denial in ways that are clear and obvious to other people. And then we call them to this radical self-denial, and they say, well, what did you give up to follow Jesus? Then we, we kind of get into a little bit of a dangerous territory to say, well, really nothing. I'm living this kind of comfortable middle-class life, and I don't, I don't sacrifice anything then there's a real danger there. We're asking them to sacrifice something that feels like their whole identity. And the incredible power of sexual desire that's tied within the homosexual community because of the way that that promiscuousness promotes itself and, uh, and even in that rewiring the brain as we had talked about this morning, uh, the way that porn rewires the brain. So, Brittany, I think that's, that's brilliant is we have to be living sacrificial lives that are very loving, showing the very thing that we're hoping that they would embrace. Very good. Kathleen? No, I'm saying I. I'm saying I might be doing that, and I would not be a very good testimony if that's kind of what my life was like. Mm. Certainly. But if my choices don't reflect the real sacrifice that the Scripture calls me to in self-denial, in other words, if, if I kind of have a Christianity that is nothing more than a convenience of Sunday, then, then I might be calling them to a whole different kind of level of faith that I'm not willing to live myself. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not accusing any person of it, but I know that at times in my life, I certainly was not living the kind of sacrificial life that I would be calling somebody else to. And so I would be very guilty in front of them if they began to probe my soul. Yeah. Cliff. Mm-hmm. 
I agree. Good, good point. Good point. Miss Faye. Yes, and I think think that's what spurred me to say over the last two Sundays in the introduction to the sermon that we have to be careful when we begin having a conversation about things like this to give grace to others. And if we don't model that as the corporate mentality, then we can quickly become... uh, I guess kind of a legalistic that's really dangerous. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's why they all laid their rocks down and walked away. Yes, Tom. Very good. Tom, Tom's saying that sometimes as a pastor he's noticed that when he's visiting people that he will actually have conversations with people that uh, as he's having the conversation they're already justifying themselves so that there, there already is a sense of wrong and so maybe some of the time our task is not to help them see they're wrong but how to see how to make things right. And I, I, I agree with that and I think that we have to be really careful. And I've seen lots of different things. My friend Chuck Wood, when he got saved, he said the, the, the thing that was most obvious to him was that he was a sinner. <laughs> he said that, that was not a thing that he would contest. It was what he was going to do with that sin that was the issue. Um, but I think that the, there's another side to that, and, and Tom raises something that I think we have to be careful to, to do, and that is sometimes when people are justifying themselves, we have to be careful not to agree with them. In other words, if they're giving their list of justifications, it's sometimes in order to kind of have a false sense of peace, we go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think sometimes it's at that point we have to stop in and say, well, what does Jesus say about that? What exactly does the Bible say about that? So that we'll make sure that what they're saying and what we're saying actually lands on the same thing um, and and so that, that they don't feel that by our nodding our head we were agreeing with their justification. And so we have to kind of walk this really fine line when we're having conversations, such as this conversation Kathleen was talking about having with someone who, who might be doing something that's wrong. How do, how do I address that in a way that tells the truth but is redemptive and careful? I think the, the danger for us all is that humans run in two arenas. We love extremes. Well, one extreme is legalism. We just love the extreme of legalism and we, we have this perfect framework that we can fit everybody in. And The other end is licentiousness or, or, or liberal thinking. And that is, well, don't, don't ever confront anybody with anything. Just let it be. Um, and so I think that there's somewhere in the middle that says, 
I don't want to bring to you a legal set of moral standards that if you obey them, you're going to go to heaven. But I do want to bring to you a set of legal moral standards that God says define sin and that there is this redemption in Christ because you can't fix your own sin. And to have this very delicate, very delicate balance in presenting those two things. Good, good questions, good comments. Chum. That identity. And yeah. Yeah, we have to be really careful. And I think that in that we have to sort out, Sean, when we're having conversations with people, if somebody takes the label and says, I am homosexual, we have to deal with the label where it is if they are bringing it up. But I think it's different when a person comes to you and says, I have homosexual struggles. And if we go laying a label on that immediately, we're, we're creating damage in categories that are unhealthy. If somebody presents us with a category, I think then we have to enter that category in conversation and say, wait a minute, Jesus has an identity that's greater than that. He has an identity that's in Christ, a child of God, a redeemed one who is loved, all of these things, the beloved of God. And so I, I want to bring you out of that as your identity into this identity in Christ. So I think when someone from a, an identity like that raises it, we still have to address it and call it because they're using it, and we have to address it. And I think that's kind of what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 6. Those are all identity traits that he talks about. But when they don't bring it up, laying it on somebody is horribly damaging and like you said, it's imprisoning to them. So we have to be really careful. Good. Dave? <laughs> yeah, I'm an arrived sinner and you're a not arrived sinner. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I certainly don't think that next Sunday, I don't think next Sunday we would show up at church if, if God was going to pull back the curtain on all of us. I think we'd probably stay at the house that day. Oh, they're going to pull back the curtain on me today. No, I think I'll stay at the house. I have a little headache today. So, yeah, I, I think that you're right, Dave. We have to... Uh, we, we, uh, we, we arrive when we are in the presence of Christ in heaven. Until then, there has to be um, a careful humility to what we do. Freddie? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that, that has to do with Matthew chapter 5 
where your righteousness has to supersede that, be greater than that of the Pharisees, what the Pharisees did is they, they were able to mask their sinful behavior in their heart. They were able to mask that by constantly pointing out the sin of others. And, Freddie, the best verse for that is, the, um, is in the book of Luke when the Pharisee goes up to pray. And in Luke 18, it says, Two men went up to pray, verse 10, at the temple, a Pharisee and the other one a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying like this to himself. God, I thank thee that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. (laughs) Now, you talk about a sad prayer. (laughs) That's a sad prayer. And in fact, Jesus brings to this man the sense of his own condemnation. Jesus said, this guy's not going to heaven. And so if somehow woven into the core of your fiber of your being is that you feel justified because of your comparison with the sins of others, it's likely you're not headed to heaven. Because the only basis for your justification is the blood of Jesus. That's it. There's There's none other. Mike. And I think every every person's journey has places of value, exactly what you're talking about, that help that person realize their need for God. And some in that journey, by the grace of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, see that and are humble, and some never do. Whether they sat in the pew the whole time or whether they sat in the street the whole time, they still didn't see what it was God was telling them about their own sin. And I think that's this whole picture in Luke 18 that Freddie brought up. It's easy to try to find assurance of your salvation based on those who really look like they're not saved. And God says, you really think that's how I'm going to do that when you get to heaven? Just bring you up and line you up with everybody else? No, he's going to stand you by Jesus. And either you'll be clothed in what he was clothed in or you won't. And that's it. That's it. I thought I saw another hand. Maybe not.
Hmm. I agree. And I think that one of the... Um, back, back in the day of the New Testament church... Um, It was just such a clear-cut distinction between the believer and the unbeliever. And the unbelieving life was so shockingly debauched. And as believers embraced and loved and ministered to and were patient and kind and generous to these unbelievers, it it sent shockwaves through the whole of Rome and changed the Roman Empire over the course of, of a couple of centuries. And that was not with buildings and with budgets and those things. It was with love and with character and with patience and kindness. And I think that the church will be well served when we understand and anticipate that unbelievers are going to act like they don't believe. (laughs) That's exactly how they're going to act. And therefore, they're going to do some things and say some things that are going to be shocking. I think it needs to be comfortable enough at our dinner table that somebody can say something really bad and and nobody's dropping their spoons. And go, not in our house. I think think unbelievers need to be at our table saying crazy things and hearing the gospel applied to it. And that's kind of how the the gospel is, is, is most effective, is at this kitchen table where we're processing these things. In, 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 in coffee shops and we're talking with people who have all kinds... Because often what happens is if they don't think like us and believe like us, it's like, that's just too much trouble. I can't handle that relationship. And, and we just jettison it. Instead of loving and patiently working, and you see Jesus, he goes to Matthew and he says, Matthew, hey, tax collector, follow me. Matthew says, okay, I'm going to throw a party and I'm going to bring all my friends. And Jesus, will you come? Could you imagine somebody of that stat, let's say a prostitute or someone like that, inviting us to say, well, look, I'm bringing all my friends who are prostitutes. Will you come to my house? And we're going like, I don't, I don't, I, I'm not. And so being able to have this kind of conversation at this level that we see exemplified in Jesus is very important. And that's where we get the gospel to the table and we have real conversations. And people start saying, what do y'all believe? We start saying, what do y'all believe? Some of my best conversations with the Satchula are interchanges of belief and sharing the gospel over tuna fish and crackers. And that's been very powerful. Yes, Carrie. I think if our children grow up with lost people at their table and they see the distinction between us and the lost people, it will well equip them when they're sitting across the table from a lost person in high school. Exactly. With love and truth and how to navigate questions and problems and challenges, uh, they're going to hear that language at a college lunch table one day. I'm not saying we want to promote it, 
I've found that most people, even the really, really lost people, have some degree of decorum at your table, but they won't go too far. Now, I've had some go pretty far, but, but they won't go too far. And so I think it's better and safer to make our homes havens of evangelism and the gospel um, uh, uh, that, that allow our family up. When we were homeschooling, uh, one, of, one of the people said, you're, you're living a protectionist life. I said, no, drunk people sleep on my couch. Abused women have been hidden in my back room. My kids know what's going on out there. They understand. They know what a slobbering drunk looks like who comes stumbling into your house and you lay them down on your couch and you cover them up. They understand that. And so I, I can't protect them from the reality of what that is. And, and they need to see that. And that's given them a real compassion for a slobbering drunk and, and, and an understanding. And so I, I think that within reason, I think those tables need to be open places for lost people to be there. Well, we've gone over, and you've had good comments and questions, and I'm really thankful. I'm thankful for your patience with me. There's no way I can do this perfectly. I, like you, am beset with all sorts of sins and gracelessness and am wrestling through this like you. So we're going to pray together and ask God to use us as missionaries in a world and in a church that need to constantly be reminded of the truth. So let's pray. Father, thank you for our discussion and the grace of it. For things we were reminded of tonight that are valuable to us, this importance of being grace people, careful, joyful. As Brittany reminded us, having a kind of self-sacrifice that exemplifies the kind of sacrifice we call others to. Grant that, we pray, that we will mimic the behavior of Jesus in the world, not to be accepted by you, but because we're accepted by you and we want to be like you, Jesus. And let us be teachers of grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.